Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wounded Blue Hour here on the America Out Loud Network. I'm your host, Randy Sutton, retired police lieutenant with 34 years of police service, the author of A Cop's Life and the soon-to-be-released well, let's let's talk about that title for just a second, Rescuing 911, the fight for America's safety. And also, the founder of The Wounded Blue, the National Assistance and Support Organization for Injured and Disabled Law Enforcement Officers. I welcome you to the show. On this show, we talk about all things related to the the uh, physical, emotional, and mental well-being of America's law enforcement community. Now, before I bring in my guest, who I am very excited to introduce, um, we do what's called our reality check. And this is where I eulogize those officers who gave their lives in the line of duty. The first officer uh, is Officer Bill Sapalu of the Honolulu Police Department. Officer Bill Sapalu succumbed to injuries sustained in a motorcycle crash on Farrington Highway, east of Fort Barrett Road, on July 11th, 2023. He was responding to a backup another officer on a weapons violation call at about 9 p.m. when his motorcycle struck a con uh, uh, excuse me, a concrete medium. He was thrown from the motorcycle and sustained serious injuries. He remained in critical condition until his organs could be donated. Officer Sapalu was a U.S. Army National Guard veteran, has served with the Honolulu Police Department for 21 years. Officer Bill Sapalu, Honolulu Police Department, Hawaii. End of watch, Tuesday, August 8th, 2023. The next is Police Officer Jonah Oswald of the Fairway Police Department in Kansas. Police officer Jonah Oswald succumbed to gunshot wounds that he received when he attempted to arrest two subjects who fled from officers in a stolen vehicle. At 7.30 a.m., Lenexa police responded to reports of a stolen vehicle in Mission. As they attempted to apprehend the subjects, the male and female fired, hitting one of the Lexica patrol vehicles. Officers from neighboring agencies, including the Fairway Police Department, assisted in the pursuit on Interstate 35 until the subjects crashed. Officer Oswald and other officers entered the store when officers attempted to arrest the subjects. Gunfire broke out. Officer Oswald was critically injured, transported to the hospital where he succumbed to his wounds the next day. The male subject was shot and killed. The female subject in custody and charged with aggravated assault on law enforcement officers. Officer Oswald was a United States Army Reserve veteran, has served with the Fairway Police for four years. Police Officer Jonah Oswald, Fairway Police Department, Kansas, end of watch, Monday, August 7th, 2023. Each of these officers gave their lives in the line of duty, protecting and serving their community. Now, these are two more deaths, uh, one of a violent murder and the other uh, succumbed to, uh, to, uh, from a traffic collision, which, which claims a lot of police lives. But the violence towards law enforcement continues daily. Uh, as of the first of this month, which is August, 226 police officers have been shot in the line of duty. And literally, this is uh, uh, happening almost every single day in America. And the men and women of law enforcement continue to go out and serve and protect and do their jobs every single day despite the danger. So uh, I appreciate you taking the time to listen to our reality check and honor the lives of those men and women who are 
serving and protecting today. Now, uh, my guest is waiting to come in. I, I am very excited to introduce him to you. His name is probably known to you because he's pretty much a household name. Larry Elder is my guest today. He is the candidate for president of the United States, an author, uh, and, a, and a man who cares about America. And I am honored to have him on the show. Larry, thank you so much for joining me here at the Wounded Blue Hour. Randy, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for what you've done for our country. And thank you, all you listeners who are in law enforcement, for what you've done for our country. Now, before uh, I forget this, because my campaign manager is listening, Randy, uh, <laughs> I, I need 40,000 individual donors to qualify for that first debate, which takes place on August 23rd uh, in Milwaukee. And the donation can be as small as $1. The amount is not important, but what's important is the number of individual donors. And I need 40,000. So please go to my website, LarryElder.com, and contribute just $1. Even if you want a different candidate, I think after Randy and I have our discussion over the next hour, you'll, you'll, you'll believe that even if Elder is not the candidate, or I don't think he can win, or I want somebody else. The kinds of things that Elder is putting front and center uh, are necessary and healthy for our national debate. So hopefully you'll, you'll come away with that conclusion. And if so, don't forget, $1 LarryElder.com. Well, you can bet that I will be, uh, I'll, I'll be sending you a little bit more than a dollar, Larry. Because if you, if you saw me send you a dollar, um, you probably never talked to me again. So I will, we'll make sure that that happens. And I urge that all of my listeners uh, and those who are viewing this on the podcast uh, go to that website and donate something to Larry. Uh, we need to have his voice. His voice is important, and um, and he can stimulate some some serious conversation. So, Larry, let's get let's get right into this. First of all, I'd like the 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 viewers and the listeners to get to know you just a little bit. Can you talk about your background just a little bit and what um, you know? You've you've done some amazing things with your life. Let's talk about the what it was in your youth that drove you to want to give back in such amazing ways? Well, Randy, uh, as I mentioned when we first started, Randy is my dad's name. I haven't done amazing things in my life. My dad has done amazing things in his life. My last name, Randy, is Elder. That is not my dad's biological father's name. My dad never met his biological father. His mother was very irresponsible. Uh, she had a series of boyfriends, each one more irresponsible than the one before. Elder was a man who was in my dad's life the longest, which is my, why my dad began using his name. I'm not even sure my dad officially was adopted by this guy, Elder. So my dad comes home at the age of 13, and he begins quarreling with his mom's then boyfriend. Elder was long gone. He was 13 years old. Uh, the mother sided with the boyfriend and threw my father out of the house, Randy, never to return. Athens, Georgia, Jim Crow South at the beginning of the Great Depression. My dad walked down the dirt road. You've heard people say so-and-so didn't have two nickels to rub together. My dad didn't have the first nickel. He uh, cleaned up trash. He cleaned out barns. Ultimately, my dad got a job as a Pullman porter. They were the largest private employer of blacks in those days. And this little black boy from Athens, Georgia was able to to uh, go all around the country and ended up at a stop one time in this place called California, a city called Los Angeles. And my dad was blown away that you could walk through the front door of a restaurant, sit down and actually get served. So maybe just maybe my dad said, someday I'll relocate to Los Angeles. Pearl Harbor, my dad joined Marines. 
when I asked my dad why the Marines, uh, those out there listening to the show who are, are part of the Marines know what I'm going to say. My dad said <laughs> two things. Number one, they go where the action is. Number two, I love those uniforms. <laughs> so my dad was stationed in the island of Guam, where, as you know, there was very heavy fighting, uh, World War II. He was a staff sergeant in charge of cooking for the colored soldiers. When the uh, war was over, my dad goes back to Chattanooga, Tennessee to get him a job as a short order cook. He can look at a cake and tell you what's in it. My dad is that good. <laughs> and he was told by restaurant owner after restaurant owner, we don't hire niggers. Mm -hmm. My dad talked about his service. We don't hire niggers. Goes to the unemployment office. The lady says, you went through the wrong door. My dad goes out to the hall and sees colored only over another door. Goes through that door to the very same lady who sent him out. She was just letting him know, Randy, what the rules were. My dad came home to my mom and said, this is BS. I'm going to L.A. where I was before the war. I'm going to get me a job as a cook and I will send for you. So my dad goes to L.A., goes to two or three restaurants, and he's told, you don't have any references. My dad said, I need references to make ham and eggs. <laughs> uh, he even offered to work for free for a reference. They wouldn't even do that. So he goes to an unemployment, unemployment office. This time, just one door. California was a lot more progressive, I guess. And the lady says, I don't have anything. My dad says, what time do you open? She says, nine. What time do you close? She says, five. My dad said, I'll be sitting in that chair until you find something. My dad sat in the chair for a whole day, came back the next day, sat there until around lunchtime. She calls him up. And she says, I have something. I don't know whether you're going to want it. My dad said, of course I'm going to want it. I'm starting a family. What is it? She said, it's a job cleaning toilets and Nabisco brand bread. My dad did that for over 10 years, took a second full-time job at another bread company cleaning toilets, cooked for a family on the weekend because he wanted my mom to be a stay-at-home mom, which she was until the youngest of us was in, the, in middle school. And then my dad went to night school at night to get his GED. And when he got that, he went to night school to learn how to operate a small restaurant. So my dad saves his nickels and dimes. At the age of 47, he starts a small cafe near downtown LA, runs it until his mid 80s. And when my dad retired, he owned that restaurant, the land underneath it, the property next door, plus the little house that we still have in our family. Not too shabby for an eighth grade dropout. Wow. Uh, Georgia Jim Crow South. That dad, is an incredible story. I mean, well, I you know the way you tell it, um, yeah, I can almost visualize it. And what uh, your when you said your father is the one that accomplished something, you're a hundred percent right. I mean, that was a very inspiring story, and also part of of America. So please continue. I didn't mean to. Um, and the cherry on top is this, Randy. My dad was a lifelong Republican. My mom was a lifelong Democrat, and you should be have been a fly on the wall to hear the <laughs> argument. But I will tell you, nobody called anybody a fascist. Nobody called anybody a Nazi. Nobody says you only care about the rich, you don't care about the poor. They argued vigorously, passionately, but respectfully. And my dad always said this about the Democrat Party. The Democrats want to give you something for nothing. When you try and get something for nothing, you almost always end up getting nothing for something. And my mm -hmm. dad always told my brothers and me the following, hard work wins. You get out of life what you put into it. You cannot control the outcome, Larry, but you are 100% in control of the effort. And before you moan or groan about what somebody did to you or said to you, go to the nearest mirror, look at it and ask yourself, what could I have done to change the outcome? And finally, my dad told my brothers and me the following, no matter how good you are, how hard you work, sooner or later, bad things are going to happen to you. How you deal with those bad things will tell your mother and me if 
we raised a man. Wow. That is, you know, to hear that kind of wisdom, uh, I wish that uh, I wish that most of America could hear that type of wisdom from their parents. Um, I think we'd have a completely different uh, a, a, a completely different landscape in America if uh, if most of of our population could have been uh, given that type of wisdom from their parents. And I think that's part of the problem too is what we faced. Um, we're seeing, you know, um, so many one-parent households throughout America where there is no real role model. I mean, you had an incredible role model growing up. But did you, when, let me ask you this, when you were growing up, did you recognize just how significant your father was? Uh, of course not. I, I think most boys and girls don't do that until they get a lot older. Uh, and began to reflect uh, on how hard life is and look back on all the sacrifices our parents made for us to appreciate that. Uh, let me just tell you real quickly about my mom, and then I wanna follow up what you said about uh, people growing up without fathers, because that's one of the reasons I'm running for president. My mom grew up on a farm. She had a very different lifestyle than my dad did. My mom grew up on a farm that her, that her family owned. It had been her family for generations. Uh, so my dad, so my mom, uh, during the Great Depression, for example, my mom said it was as if the Great Depression never happened because she had her own uh, livestock. They had their own uh, uh, agriculture. They sold the surplus. Uh, the, the Great Depression just kind of flew right over them. And my mom always told my brothers and me, uh, make sure that you emphasize education and that nobody but nobody can make you feel inferior without your permission. And I say that because in high school, fast forward now, I'm in high school, the high school is all black. And we took a course in African-American literature. Uh, that's what the course was called, African-American literature. I, I only say that uh, because it's truth in lending. I never use the term African-American, Randy, to describe myself. I'm an American who is black. I very much resent the term African-American. I'm just telling you that was the name of the course. And we read this poem by a guy named County Cullen, a black poet, and it goes like this. While riding through old Baltimore, so small and full of glee, I saw a young Baltimorean keep a looking straight at me. Now, I was young and very small, and he was no whit bigger, and so I smiled. But he poked out his tongue and called me nigger. I saw the whole of Baltimore from May until September. Of all the things that happened there, that's all that I remember. The teacher who was black was furious. Everybody in my class was black. We were all furious. The teacher said this kid is always going to feel like a second-class citizen. He's always going to have a permanent uh, stain on his psyche and never feel part of the American community. Uh, she was livid. We all were livid. So I walk home, and I knew, Randy, that my mom was going to have a different take on the poem, although I didn't know what it was going to be. So I walk into the house. She's in the kitchen, stirring a big pot of greens and frying a fried chicken wings, my favorite. And I said, Mom, we read a poem in class, and the teacher had a really harsh reaction to it, and I want to get your reaction. She says, well, how's it go? I said, it goes like this, Mom. While riding through old Baltimore, so small and full of glee, I saw a young Baltimorean keep a looking straight at me. Now, I was young and very small, and he was no whit bigger, and so I smiled. But he poked out his tongue and called me nigger. I saw the whole of Baltimore from May until September of all the things that happened there. That's all that I remember. My mom took the spoon out of the pot, hit it on the side, and turned to me and said, Larry, what a darn shame he allowed something like that to spoil his vacation. How many wings do you want? 
Oh, uh, I, I, I wish I, I wish I could have tasted that fried chicken myself. <laughs> this is a woman told, who told me that when she went downtown to the department store, A, she could only go in the back door and B, once a article of clothing touched her skin, whether she wanted it, could afford it, whether it fit properly, she had to buy it because it touched her dark skin. And when my mom was telling me that story over the kitchen table, I turned to my dad, I said, dad, was it like that for you too? And my dad pointed to his head and said, hats, H-A-T-S, hats too. Meaning once you put on a hat, you had to buy the hat whether or not it fit. This is the kind of stuff they went through. My dad was very entrepreneurial. He wanted to run a, a, tab, a taxi service in the little country town where he grew up. You had to go to court, however, to get a license to do so. The judge, who was white, already had hired a black guy to do exactly what my dad wanted uh, in the country. He didn't want my dad to be competition. So he denied my dad the license in open court and referred to my dad as a nigger in open court. This is what real systemic racism is, what people like my, my mom, my dad, that whole generation endured. That's why I have so little patience when I hear this nonsense that America in 2023, after being the only majority white country in history to elect and reelect a black president, and I still hear the same nonsense. And so uh, that's my background, uh, Randy. That's why I believe so strongly in America, and that's why I know that while we're never going to completely eradicate racists and racism, it is so insignificant now that if you're willing to work hard, get an education, invest in yourself, don't have a, ch a child before you're 20 years old, get married first, get a job, keep that job, avoid the criminal justice system, you will not be poor. And that's the message we ought to be telling our kids instead of saying things like your old reparations, your old race-based preferences, your old diversity, equity, inclusion. My dad used to tell my mother and my brothers and me, you're not owed a damn thing. If you don't work for it, you don't deserve it. You know, I, I'm going to go back into, into my history just a little bit. And I want to talk about um, when I first became a police officer, it was many, many it was decades ago now, which I hate to admit, but it was in the it was in the mid 70s. And the police profession at that time was predominantly white, predominantly male. And there was a um, there was a, a very insignificant number of blacks that were that were um, in the police profession at that time. Now, as as the the world began to change and, and we began to change with it, I saw a, a, a sea change take place where uh, suddenly and and I and and I got to tell you uh, there I didn't hear any any overt racism in the department that I was in it was but of course I was in a small college town Princeton um, but I didn't I wasn't really subjected to that uh, you know seeing uh, uh, systemic racism on any scale that I was able to recognize when it come down to hiring but as the years went by, um, you know, the, the police world has significantly changed when it comes down to uh, the number of, of uh, black police officers, Hispanic police officers, and, and all other races and genders. So the police profession has also, um, uh, you know, changed uh, dramatically over the, over even the, the, the since the seventies. So, uh, what I'm what I'm getting at is you have have been a student of the change in America. You you visualized it. You lived it. 
Um, now you're you, you're running for president of the United States, which is it would have been inconceivable uh, probably 50 years ago. That has to that evolvement uh, of our nation has got to want to play a role uh, with you when it comes down to what you want to uh, your message and what you want to accomplish. Absolutely. This is not your grandfather, let alone your great grandfather's America. It is very, very different. I'll give you an example. In 1964, the Civil Rights Act uh, was passed. By the way, a greater percentage of Republicans voted for it in the House and Senate than did Democrats, but it got passed. And Martin Luther King was giving an interview on British television two years later, 1966. And he said, and I'm paraphrasing, the changes in America since the passage of the Civil Rights Act just in the last two years have surprised me. Why America has become so much more progressive, why in about 40 years, he said, we could have a black president. Do the math, Randy, right on cue, 2008, Barack Obama got elected. Now, what's interesting is that MLK did not say in 40 years time, we'll have a black president of Harvard University, by the way, and we do. He didn't say in 40 years time, uh, the governor of the uh, one of the states of the Confederacy, the headquarters of the Confederacy, Virginia, would have a black governor, and we did. He didn't say in 40 years time, all three mayors of America's three largest cities, New York, Chicago, and LA will be black, and they currently are, uh, even though blacks are just 25% of New uh, they've got a black mayor. Chicago, just a third of the population is black. They've got their second consecutive black mayor. LA is just 9% black. They have their second a black mayor, a black female. Uh, he didn't say that on the Forbes uh, list of 100 most powerful celebrities, 25% of them are gonna be black. He didn't say that in 100 years time, the percentage of black members of the House of Representatives will reflect the same percentage of blacks in the population. He didn't say the most powerful association of lawyers, the American Bar Association, will have two have, have had two black presidents. He didn't say the most powerful association of doctors, the American Medical Association, will have had two black presidents, and we have. He said black president, meaning I've been to the mountaintop to refer to the speech that he gave the night before he was murdered, meaning if you elect a black president, we can now say to the fullest extent that is practical, America is now evaluating people based on content of character rather than color of skin. Well, Obama got elected got reelected even though he presided over the worst economic recovery since 1949. And now we act as if it never even happened. We're talking about reparations uh, and systemic racism and race-based preferences and DEI as if Obama never even happened. MLK wasn't talking about any of these kinds of things. He was talking about once America elects a black president, this nonsense is done and we can say, uh, uh, mission accomplished, and we can move forward. And that's one of the many reasons, Randy, why I'm running for president. We're talking about fatherlessness. That is far and away the biggest social problem in America. MLK grew up a nuclear intact family. Andrew Young grew up nuclear intact family. You look at the civil rights leaders of that era, almost all of them grew up in a nuclear intact family. Now, 70% of black kids today enter the world without a father in the home married to the mother 
up from 25 percent back in 1965. In fact, 25 percent of white kids now enter the world without a father in the home married to the mother. And the stats are clear. Even Barack Obama once quoted him, a man who also grew up, by the way, without a father, without a biological father. If you are raised without a dad, you are five times more likely to be poor and commit crime. Nine times we're likely to drop out of school and 20 times we're likely to end up in jail. What's happened with the welfare state launched, I believe, with the best of intentions by a Democrat named Linda Johnson in the mid 60s. We have incentivized women to marry the government and incentivized men to abandon their financial and moral responsibility. And when I say this to liberals, no matter the color of the liberals, uh, they often push back and they talk about systemic racism. And I respond this way. OK. If it isn't fatherlessness, please explain to me why 50% of American homicide victims are black, almost always killed by other black people, not killed by white supremacists, contrary to what Joe Biden claimed uh, was the biggest threat to America's homeland. 60% of the robberies, 60% of the shootings, 60% of the murders in America are committed by black people, often against other black people. A young black man, according to the Center for Disease Control, aged 10 to 43, Randy, is 13 times more likely to be murdered than a young white man, same demo. Unless you are prepared, and I assume you're not, to say black people are just genetically inclined to commit more crime, if it isn't fatherlessness, please tell me what the devil do you think it is? We've had out here in California, an uh, area called uh, Glendale, which is a suburb of LA where I used to work for a number of years, and another high-end mall were terrorized by 30 to 40 uh, groups of, of, of mobs, organized crime, where in about a minute each, they stole about $300 worth of damage. Now they were wearing masks, but in the past we've seen these uh, smashing grabs, and most of them appear to be done by young black men. I'll tell you this, if I were involved in a mob like that, Randy, I would be more afraid of what my father would do to me than what the cops would do to me if they caught me. They're afraid of neither. They don't have fathers in the home. The police are <coughs> undergunned, outmanned, demoralized, not engaging in proactive policing. We have in, in, in California cashless bail. You can steal up to $1,000. And if you get busted, they write you a ticket because you committed a misdemeanor. And because there's cashless bail, you have zero chances of going to prison. When you reduce the chances of a bad guy being caught, being convicted, being incarcerated, crime will go up. They may be criminals, but they're not stupid. And that's what's going on in this country. And nobody but nobody, including President Trump, for whom I have a great deal of respect, is saying one word about the epidemic of fatherlessness. You know, uh, when you're talking about about crime, of course, this is uh, this is the bread and butter of uh, what I talk about both in my as a commentator on for different uh, news services, but also in what I see in uh, the mental health of America's law enforcement officers. You know, the Wounded Blue, of course, you know, helps injured and disabled officers across the country. And since the defunding, demoralizing movement that that has been very, very effective, unfortunately, uh, we're seeing uh, what I say is a, is a crisis in the criminal justice system. The crisis is that, that we no longer have, uh, 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 we're no longer retaining police officers at the rate that we once were. They are leaving in droves. They're retiring or they're just quitting. Now, because we have made this job such a, a, a horror, if you will, 
people who would have once been recruits are just saying, I'm not doing it anymore. I'm not going to do this job. Uh, you know, it used to be families uh, of police officers, right? You know, one fa a father would, would uh, you know, build his son up in, in, in the world and, and, you know, show how policing is a noble, noble job and then want to bring their children into it. That's not happening anymore. And so we're seeing this crisis. But I think there's, there's, a, there's something I want to ask you about, and that is we're seeing uh, an absolute epidemic of, uh, of Soros-funded prosecutors that have been put into place. I call them Trojan horse prosecutors because they've basically been put into that position by the voters and they are literally, the, the, they are destroying the system from within. What can be done about this? Because the only person that that as uh, the only governor that's done anything about this is Governor DeSantis in Florida, who's removed two of those uh, two of those prosecutors because they simply weren't prosecuting; they were doing just the opposite. That's what right. what can be done in America to to um, to deal with this scourge? the rise of independent media, we are now AmericaOutloud.news. For the genius of the United States is not found in its executives or legislatures, nor its ambassadors, authors, colleges, or churches, nor even in its newspapers or inventors. The genius of the United States is we the people. AmericaOutloud.news, liberty and justice for all. Cofix RX nasal solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flus, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, and sleep deep. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order, risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Out loud. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. And, and one of them in Philadelphia was impeached, but the state uh, Senate refused to take up the trial, so he remains there. We've had two unsuccessful attempts to recall a George Soros back DA out here in L.A. County. Uh, so far, it's been unsuccessful. On my website, Randy, at LarryElder.com, I have a proposal that states can adopt to set up commissions. Uh, it's called Enforce the Law Act. 
And these commissions consist of retired judges and retired DAs to hear complaints of citizens about bad guys that are on the streets who otherwise would not be on the streets, but for these George Soros soft on crime DAs, or about bad guys who are charged to the fullest extent of the law because of the George Soros backed uh, uh, DAs. And I'm urging states all around the country to pass this legislation to make it easier to get rid of these, uh, these uh, DAs that are not doing the number one job of government, which is to protect people and property. Uh, on this um, attack of the police, though, uh, this lie about the police engaging in systemic racism, not only is the lie in general about America remaining systemically racist that Democrats push driving nonsense like reparations, which I argue is the extraction of money from people who are never slave owners to be given to people who are never slaves. It's also driving things like race-based preferences, DEI that I mentioned earlier. It is getting people killed. All around America, officers are pulling back, as we touched on earlier. Even a Democrat mayor in Chicago, Rahm Emanuel, said after a high-profile shooting of a black person, the Chicago PD had, quote, gone fetal, close quote, meaning they weren't engaging in the normal proactive policing. There is a data scientist who used to work for Thomson Reuters. I say used to work because he got fired for the paper that he wrote and pasted on their internal bulletin. He used to be a proponent of Black Lives Matter until he did a study and he found out in city after city after city, whether Baltimore, Chicago, New York, LA, you name it, where there was a high profile shooting of a black person, the police had pulled back. So over the next few years, there were literally thousands of what he called were excess deaths of people who otherwise would be alive if the police had been doing their normal proactive policing. And guess what? The bulk of these excess deaths were the very black and brown people that people on the left purport to care about. Every single year, the police kill more unarmed whites than they kill unarmed blacks. Most people in America cannot name a single unarmed white because the media doesn't care. Uh, out in California, in an area called Fullerton, I urge people to Google Kelly Thomas. Horrible uh, video where the police were, in my opinion, uh, roughly handling, handling a homeless guy, mentally ill. Uh, it went longer than the George Floyd video. Google Tony Tempa, T-I-M, like Paul A, Dallas, Texas, another mentally ill man uh, handled roughly by the police, uh, agonizing video that lasted longer than the George Floyd video. Nobody knows their name because the media couldn't give a rip because it doesn't advance the narrative. The narrative is that the police are mistreating black people, using deadly force against black people just because they're black. It is not true. It has been studied thoroughly. There is a black Harvard economist named Roland Fryer and like me, he's from the inner city. He's from the inner city in Baltimore. And he just knew that the police were, were using deadly force against black people just because they're black. Did an extensive study, and he said the results were the most surprising of my professional career. Not only were the police uh, killing black people just because they were black, they were more hesitant, more reluctant to pull the trigger on a black suspect than on a white suspect. It is just not true. There was a cover story about this in July of 2016 in the New York Times of all places. Same year, cover story, Washington Post, April 27, 2016. Decades of shoot, don't shoot series. Uh, and it turns out the police were more hesitant, more reluctant to pull the trigger on a black suspect than a white suspect. It is a lie. It is a lie that it's getting people killed. It's getting people killed also in this way. Think about the George Floyd protests or the Black Lives Matter protests that began in May of 2020. Lasted over four months, over 200 cities, 35 people killed, 
2,000 police officers wounded, $2 billion worth of insured damage, another maybe a billion or two of uninsured damage. Why? Because of an assumption that what happened to George Floyd, however you feel about the way he was an officer, a chauvin, that what happened to George Floyd had to do with George Floyd's race. Never mind the black prosecutor who prosecuted the case said in his opening statement, the police in general are not on trial. The Minneapolis PD in general is not on trial. This individual is on trial for what he did or what he didn't do to George Floyd. He never argued that the cop was motivated by George Floyd's race and the cop was never charged with a hate crime. Yet people all over America protesting, including some violently because of an assumption that what happened to George Floyd had to do with his race. Zero evidence of that at all. And um, this is kind of nonsense that's going on. There's a magazine, I'm sure you know about it, it's on the website called policemag.com. And they talked about a poll and people who are self-described as very liberal, I dare say that almost all the people in the streets in May of 2020 and, and once thereafter, probably if, they, if you ask them their political ideology, they describe themselves as very liberal. Turns out half of the people who self-described as very liberal thought the police killed 1,000 unarmed black men <laughs> in 2019. Of those right. who, who self-described as just liberal, 39% thought the police killed 1,000 unarmed black men in 2019. And by the way, unarmed does not mean not dangerous. Michael Brown was unarmed, but his DNA was found on the officer's gun. The actual number, 12 according to the Washington Post database. Now, Randy, that's the gap between what people think is going on because of what the media tells them, what Democrats tell them, and what is really going on. Uh, and this is a kind of false narrative that is driving this kind of bitterness, hatred, and hostility towards the police. One more thing. Uh, when Barack Obama got elected, he got elected with 53% of the vote. He walked into the Oval Office in January of 2009, and Randy, he had 70% popularity, approval rating. How can that be? The man hadn't done anything, hadn't signed an executive order. Why did all of a sudden 18% more say to themselves or 15% more say to themselves, you know, I think I want my capital gains taxes raised. I think I want Obamacare. <laughs> no, they said at the very least, because he is a black man who before he got elected, when he was asked whether or not, if he doesn't get the nomination, will it be because of race, said no. If I don't win the nomination, it will be because I've not articulated a view that the American people can embrace. They thought they elected the guy who gave a speech when he was a candidate at a black church. It was talking about, he was talking about how much racism there is in America. And he said the Moses generation, referring to the generation of MLK, has quote, gotten us 90% of the way there, close quote. My generation, which he described as the Joshua generation, has to get us an additional 10 10%. Reasonable. Because there was a Fox opinion poll 2002, Randy, 8% of Americans thought it was possible that Elvis is still alive. So you pretty much have to get off 8% of people. That's the guy America thought they hired, which is why when he walked into the Oval Office, third week of January 2009, his approval hit 70%. What did the man do for the next eight years? One attack on America as a racist country after another, beginning with the Cambridge police acted stupidly. You remember that incident? Oh, okay. I couldn't. Have, I couldn't forget it. The president of of, of Harvard uh, African American Studies Department chairman, uh, and he and Obama are friends. So he's on vacation. 
comes back from vacation to his home in Cambridge, forgets his door key. So he and the cab, cab driver break into the house. A neighbor sees this, calls 911, which is exactly what you want our neighbors to do. A white officer shows up, Cambridge police officer, sees this man in the house and very politely asks him to come out and show ID. And rather than comply with a perfectly calm, reasonable, rational, lawful order, what did he do? I'll come out if your mama tells me to come out. So he got briefly arrested. And what did Obama do? What he should have done, Randy, is, you know, last night I had a talk with my good friend, Henry, Henry Louis Skip Gates. I said, Skip, what are you doing? You're a role model for crying out loud. Virtually every one of these high profile shootings of young black men would have been avoided if the young black man had simply complied. Comply, you won't die. And that's what you should have done. And I want you to go out right now and apologize to the Cambridge police and apologize to the police in general. What did Obama say? The Cambridge police acted stupidly. And then if I had a son, he looked like Trayvon. Uh, there's zero evidence that whatever George Zimmerman did had anything to do with Trayvon Martin's uh, uh, race. And he was found, George Zimmerman, not guilty. It was true there were no blacks on the jury, but there was a black alternate. And the alternate said, as, as did the other jurors who publicly spoke, race had nothing to do with it. I would have found George Zimmerman not guilty myself. And that's the incident, by the way, that sparked the creation of Black Lives Matter. And then Obama said, Racism is in America's DNA. How can racism be in America's DNA when when Gallup first asked white Americans in the 50s if you'd elect a black president, the answer was in the 30s. Now only about 4% of whites said they would not vote for a black president if they thought he or she was qualified. Then he embraced Black Lives Matter, had Al Sharpton in the White House over 70 times, had a AG, Eric Holder, who played the race card time and time and time again, uh, and said, when, when it comes to matters of race, America, quote, has been a nation of cowards, close quote, whatever that means, to the point where, and this is the point I'm trying to make, uh, in Obama's second term, the last two years, there were execution-style shootings of two NYPD cops sitting in their squad car, officers Lou and Ramos, black guy comes up behind them, pops them both in the back of the head, kills them, posts on social media his assumption, his belief that the police were engaging in systemic racism against blacks. Baton Rouge, three officers killed, execution style, by another black man who either told friends or posted on social media that he believed the police were engaging in systemic racism against black. Five Dallas police officers all killed, execution style, by another black man who posted on social media or told friends the police were engaging in systemic racism. I told you the facts do not support this whatsoever, yet they were all motivated by this anti-cop rhetoric started at the very top by, by a guy named Barack Obama. He made things worse. When he entered the Oval Office, both blacks and whites thought race relations would improve. When he left, both blacks and whites thought they got worse, in large part because of the anti-cop, anti-American rhetoric this man pounded down our throats for a full eight years. I am acutely aware that I am a black man uh, and that if I become president, I'll be the second black man. I'm gonna be the black man that America thought they hired when they hired Barack Obama uh, back in November of 2008. You are a walking encyclopedia of knowledge uh, that um, is, is such, it's so refreshing to hear someone that has done their homework, that knows the realities. You know, law enforcement has watched aghast from the time that Barack Obama did 
come out with the, with the police acted stupidly. That was actually the milestone. That was a moment when the entire American public was given this by the, the leader of the free world came out with this statement that is still reverberating today. And then you had the great lie of Ferguson, the hands up, don't shoot, which is still percolating within the, the, the system now. And you had it embraced by, uh, by politicians. The, the Black Caucus got up in Congress with the hands up, don't shoot, all based on a myth that never happened. And yet, and yet still, the, it is still having an impact on law enforcement today. And uh, absolutely, and I, I left that part out. Uh, he was speaking at the United Nations and he invoked Ferguson. And Ferguson, as you well know, was a big, fat lie. He never had his hands up. He never said, don't shoot. Even the Obama DOJ completely exonerated, and that's the right word, exonerated the police officer, but still accused the Ferguson PD of engaging in systemic racism. Why? Because Ferguson is 67% black, but 85% of the officer uh, police stops are black. 18 point gap. Ergo said Obama systemic racism. Hold the phone. Let's take NYPD. Unlike Ferguson, which only had, I think, two or three uh, black cops out of about 50, the NYPD is racially diverse. It reflects the racial diversity of the city. However, blacks are just 25% of the population, as I mentioned earlier, but they're 55% of the police stops. That's a 30-point gap, a larger gap than is the case in Ferguson. Why then is not the NYPD systemically racist even though their diversity, they're, they're racially diverse. And the answer is, you can't look at it by numbers like that. You have to look at it by offending. And in 2013, during the Obama administration, the NIJ, which stands for the National Institutes of Justice, which is a research arm of the DOJ, put out a study called Race and Traffic Stop. And it is true that blacks are disproportionately stopped compared to their population in a given area. It's also true that blacks disproportionately break the law, which is why they are stopped more often than other people are. And the report concluded that the reason for the racial disparity in the stops were because of, quote, legitimate variables, close quote. Isn't it good news to know that when cops are pulling you over, it's not because you're black, it's because you're breaking the law? Isn't that good news? But instead, when I talk about these kinds of things, as I've been doing it for years on my radio show, I'm called a sellout or as the LA Times called me, the black face of white supremacy. You ought to be saying what Elder is saying is factually true, A and B. It means that we cannot blame the system. And C, it means we can do something about it. It ought to be encouraging news. Let me ask you something, Larry. Um, we have seen uh, in, 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 the, in the real world, we're seeing uh, state legislatures, we are seeing city and county governments who are doing everything possible to limit the amount of stops by the police. In fact, you actually have have uh, uh, California and Illinois and Oregon and some other cities and states that have basically told the police, you're no longer allowed to enforce the law. And they list a bunch of laws uh, such such as minor traffic stops. Well, if you if you remove the tools from the law enforcement 
community, then you are going to see what we are seeing now, which of course is the 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 skyrocketing of violent crime. Because when you're when you when you don't enforce even minor laws, it can have an effect as it moves up this as it moves up into into the the more um, the more egregious laws and you know you remember when when new york city was the most dangerous place on earth remember back in the 60s right. and 70s and 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 it was uh it was the uh police and the law enforcement community that wound up saying you know what there's a way to combat this and they made new york the safest big city in the country by enforcing right. laws that's right. They employed the broken windows theory uh, and they employed a stop, question and frisk and crime went down. And, you know, and Randy, when you don't enforce so-called minor traffic offenses, guess whose safety is imperiled? The very <laughs> exactly. black and brown people living in the inner city that people on the left purport to care about. Same thing with other matters. Uh, for example, I mentioned earlier Eric Holder, uh, the race card playing AG under Barack Obama. He gave a speech one time and he talked about how America is no longer blatantly racist. We have pernicious racism that we have to deal with. And one of the examples he gave was the fact, and it is true, that black boys are disproportionately kicked out of, of uh, high school campuses compared to other races in a given school. And that is absolutely true. He implied it was because of racism. When in fact, irrespective of the composition of the school board, irrespective of the race of the principal, irrespective of the race of the teacher, black boys are disproportionately kicked out compared to other races in a given school, in a, in a given a student body. Now, the people that are most hurt, if you don't kick them out, are the kids sitting in the same classroom whose learning curve is now diminished because the teacher has to spend time uh, disciplining rather than reading, writing, and teaching you how to compute at grade level. And regarding this attack uh, on the police and telling them not to uh, engage in certain stops, let's take a city called Baltimore. Baltimore, where a few years ago, Freddie Gray died in, uh, in the police van uh, in police custody. There were six officers who were tried, as you recall. Three of them were black. The state attorney who brought the charges against the six officers was black. The mayor at the time was black. The number one and number two people running the police department, black. A judge before whom two of the cops tried their cases without a jury was black, found them, by the way, not guilty. All of city council, Democrat, majority, black. The city superintendent of schools, black. The county superintendent of schools, black. The U.S. Attorney General at the time, Loretta Lynch, black, as was, by the way, the President of the United States, Barack Obama, black. So you have all these black people running the system and they're yelling and screaming about institutional racism. It reminds me of what that black comedian Wanda Sykes said, Obama got elected. She said, how are you going to complain about the man when you are the man? And so city after <laughs> L.A. is one of them. Uh, Chicago, another one, uh, New York, another one, where the commissioner or the head of the LA of the police department is black, and where in the case of LA and New York, the police department reflects the racial diversity of the city. It doesn't matter. If there's a high-profile shooting of a black person, a bunch of yahoos get down the street and start yelling and screaming about systemic racism, even as black people are running the very system that they still are arguing uh, is systemically racist. It drives you crazy. In the few minutes that we have left, 
Um, if you could give a message to the law enforcement officers who are um, who are doing the job today, who are out literally on the streets and they are uh, sacrificing their lives, their lives are being changed by the by the injuries they are receiving because of attacks against them. What would your message be to the American law enforcement officer? My message would be, please, please don't lose faith. The majority of Americans, we're not talking about the neck bones, we're talking about the majority of Americans, appreciate the hard job that you do. I saw a poll that found 81% of blacks want the police manpower to remain the same, if not to be increased, which is around the same percentage uh, of whites who give the same reaction. We know that you are the thin blue line between us uh, and the lawless element that's going on in this country. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, you are tasked with not only being uh, somebody to deal with law enforcement, but you're also tasked with being social workers and psychologists and all sorts of things that are unfair to you. The number one problem again in America uh, is the epidemic of fatherlessness and that needs to be addressed. And while we are addressing that problem, in the meantime, people need to be held responsible. I mentioned my dad never knew his biological father. My father knew right from wrong. And most people tell their kids the same thing my dad used to tell my brothers and me. If you are stopped by the police, make sure your left hand uh, is at 10 o'clock. Make sure your right hand is at 2 o'clock. Uh, say yes, sir. Uh, say no, sir. Say yes, ma'am. Say no, ma'am. Make sure your paperwork is in order. And if you feel that you have been mistreated, get a badge number and we'll deal with it while we're still alive. But we appreciate the hard work and the sacrifice that law enforcement uh, is doing. You are willing to take a bullet uh, for somebody you don't even know. And believe me, regular Americans who get up in the morning, most of whom are law-abiding, hardworking, drug abstaining, tax-paying people appreciate the hard work that you do. And may God continue to bless you. I appreciate those words myself. And uh, uh, once again, uh, to my viewers and my listeners, you need to donate at least $1 to Larry's campaign so that his voice can be heard. And we as Americans need to hear that voice. You know, whether he is ultimately successful, uh, we can't control that. But we can, right now, play a role in, in allowing his voice to be heard. So give us the website again. There it is, LarryElder.com. Donate at least $1 and let's let's let Larry tell the world the truth because it's about damn time that we heard it. Larry, Randy, thank you. Thank you. There are about 800,000 law enforcement officers uh, in America. If just a fraction of them gave me $1, uh, that would get me to the 40,000 that I need in order for me to say some of the things that Randy and I have been talking about on August 23rd uh, this month in Milwaukee. So please, LarryElder.com, a minimum of $1. And thank you so, so very much. Larry, I can't thank you enough for taking the time, especially in your crazy busy schedule, to uh, to be here at the Wounded Blue Hour. Your concern for the American law enforcement officer is evident. Your knowledge about the, the truth and about the plight that they face is also evident. And I want to thank you for taking the time, not just to be on the show, but to care about the American police officer. Well, Randy, thank you very much. The black face of white supremacy is here for you. <laughs> that was pretty funny, I got to say. <laughs> okay, so 
Um, we've reached the, our time limit. Uh, that that conversation I could continue with uh, with Larry for hours. Um, he is he is truly knowledgeable. Uh, has made sure that he knows the facts, the truth, and he's not afraid to say it. So, um, Larry Elder, uh, I appreciate the fact that he came on the show. So, once again, uh, uh, go to LarryElder.com, give at least a dollar. Let's hear. Let's make sure that voice is is heard throughout America. Now, one thing I also ask you is to go to thewoundedblue.org. This is the National Assistance and Support Organization for Injured and Disabled Officers. Uh, to date, we've helped more than 14,000 American law enforcement officers, whether those injuries are physical or emotional and psychological. There is a war against the American law enforcement officer, and you can help them by helping the Wounded Blue. For more information, go to thewoundedblue.org to donate. Just hit that donate button. If you are a law enforcement officer and you're struggling, with either some emotional issues or you've been injured in the line of duty and you're walking that journey by yourself, you don't have to. Uh, that's why the Wounded Blue exists. Go to the website and just hit that contact form and let us know that you'd like to talk to somebody and one of our confidential peer support team members will be in contact with you. Once again, thank you for joining me here at the Wounded Blue Hour on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Randy Sutton. 